This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Now, we, we've all heard about uh, standing room only audiences, but this is my first experience of a sitting room only audience, which puts me in mind of... Uh, an idiom in rabbinic Hebrew, which is one way you can say to study w- with a teacher is mitabek afar raglav, to wallow in the dust of his feet. Of course, it's not too dusty in here, so. <laughs> okay, the obvious question uh, about anyone who's undertaken a project such as I have is um, why would anyone do it? That, that, that is, uh, it's not only that it's, it ends up being with a commentary, 3,000 pages and so forth. It's not the quantity, it's the nature of the undertaking, which is to translate again the world's most translated book. And the, the short answer is that... Um, there is something gravely wrong with my predecessor's translations. Uh, I, I make a partial exception for the King James Version, but I'm not going to talk about the, the King James Version. If, if anyone is curious what I have to say about that, I can always address that in, in a, the Q&A period. Now, I would say that there are two principal things wrong with all, all the modern versions, the modern English versions uh, of the Hebrew Bible. A, a deficient sense of uh, English style and a deficient sense of Hebrew style. The, the latter may surprise you because you, you fear, well, the people who have trans, who've been the committees that translated the Bible Jewish, Protestant, Catholic, uh, have PhDs in biblical studies from uh, august institutions such as Johns Hopkins, the University of Chicago, the University of Pennsylvania, Harvard, Yale, and in England, of course, Oxford and Cambridge. And they have devoted years to the study of biblical Hebrew, so surely they, they know uh, a lot about biblical style. But they don't, because they don't study style. They, they, they study uh, technical aspects of the ancient language, which is something I- entirely uh, different. Um, now, uh, as far as deficiencies of English style... Uh, this is something that more or less dumbfounds me. That is, these are educated people, presumably broadly read, uh, but they have a shaky sense of English. Uh, that, that, that is, uh, their style uh, wobbles from um, uh, something that sounds like board directors of a corporation to the daily newspaper to, I, I don't know what, to colloquial language. Uh, and it's a pretty much of a mishmash uh, and doesn't at all reflect the, um, the Hebrew style. 
now, reflecting the Hebrew style is a tricky thing, I can attest, having wrestled with, with the trickiness of it for over two decades, uh, because w we have two languages that are separated from each other by at least two and a half millennia. And uh, the structure of these languages is quite different. And the semantic range of many key terms is, uh, is quite different. But let me begin by saying that one fatal mistake is to make the Bible sound as though it were written just yesterday. Because it wasn't. It was written a long time ago. The, the translators do this out of the, I think, misguided sense that, that readers will be alienated if, they don't, if it's not uh, translated into uh, contemporary English. And I think that's wrong. Now, you cannot, of course, uh, uh, translate it in, into a language that sounds that it's 2,700 years old. But I think what you can do is to avoid all kinds of expressions that, that are egregiously contemporary uh, and uh, to uh, give a certain delicate antique coloration to your language without, of course, being coyly ancient, you know, with forsooth and anents and, and that sort of thing. Um, well, I'll give you one, one, one example. It's a fairly simple example. Terms for sex in the Bible. Now, there are basically three terms for sexual intercourse in the Bible. To, um, to know, which is always a man to a woman. This is a patriarchal uh, text. Uh, second, also to um, a man to a woman is to um, come into. And the, which speaks for itself. And the, the third one is to lie with. Now, uh, but the, I, I think that the, um, the sexual sense of to know is, ever since the King James Version is f f clearly enough established in English that readers would not be published, would not be puzzled by it. In fact, we have a legal term, carnal knowledge, and, and we know what that refers to. But the, the modern translators say, no, no, that's wrong. We've got to make it uh, crystal clear to the, uh, the modern reader. So we have to cohabit, to have intimate relations with, uh, and so on and so forth. The, the worst of all is at least one translation that I've looked at of the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife has Potiphar's wife say to the, the sexy young Joseph, uh, make love to me. Now, okay, the, the meaning is clear, but it's all wrong in tone. That, 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 that is, a, a, a modern um, 
let's say, frustrated wife or a mistress might, might say to her male partner, make love to me, but not an ancient uh, Egyptian aristocratic lady. So, so uh, uh, this is the kind of thing that, that I try to steer clear of. So, um, oh, and I, I would add this, I, I, I won't try your patience with, with examples, but often I find that the modern translators mangle English idioms, which seems to me uh, perplexing. I, I don't know why they wouldn't have a better ear for, the, for English usage, but they don't. Okay, so what is it that one needs to attend to in the Hebrew style? First, there's a matter of diction. I'm talking now about the, the um, to begin with, uh, the, the narrative prose. That is, the, the, the narrative prose in the Hebrew Bible uses a very limited vocabulary. And I believe that that vocabulary was limited by convention, that it was understood between the writer and his audience that you use only certain words in literary narrative and not others. How do I, I know this? Well, to begin with, you wouldn't imagine that a sophisticated society could get along on such a, a, a small number of words. But secondly, if you look from the prose to the poetry, you find that, that there's, there are many words in the poetry that never appear in the prose. Uh, for example, there's only one way to say light, like this kind of light in uh, the, the narratives, and that's or, plus the um, cognate ma'or, which means source of light. Uh, in, if you turn to the poetry, you find uh, words like um, uh, brilliance, dazzle, effulgence, Radiance, uh, those you know, Hebrew probably could fill in a few of those in the Hebrew. And um, so that tells us something uh, about what the, the prose writers were doing. That is, they were cultivating this middle style, which was um, deliberately restricted in uh, vocabulary. And getting something very eloquent out of it. Uh, for example, um, in the flood story, uh, here uh, I admire what the King James Version does, and even though I wasn't looking, I, I don't look at other translations until I've done a draft of my own, so even though I wasn't looking at it, I did the same thing that they did. That is, and the waters... Uh, were on the face of the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And the ark was upon the waters. Uh, now, if you... Th there's something, I, I think, quite beautiful about the stark simplicity of just using the verb was. Whereas the, 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 the modern translators, well, that's too simple. So... 
they, they, they have the ark floating, the, the, uh, the waters deluging, and so on and so forth. In, in other words, they tart up the, the biblical language and in that way fundamentally uh, misrepresent it. So th- there's that middle diction uh, of the narrative prose, which is homespun, concrete, and yet very dignified. Then there's the, the language of the dialogues, which I think, for the most part, there are a few exceptions, follows the decorum of correct literary Hebrew, but dips in the direction, makes a kind of gesture toward the colloquial, which you don't find in the narrator's prose. And then, finally, there's the language of poetry, which is elevated. Uh, It uses a specialized poetic vocabulary. I think that in some instances, it's somewhat more archaic than the surrounding Hebrew. And a, a translator has to make some effort to get these different levels of uh, diction. Now, um, when I say that the lexicon is conventionally limited, one of the corollaries uh, of that limitation is that there is uh, an abundant use of repetition, which is actually quite artful. and I'll, I'll give you two examples. Uh, because, again, the, the moderns think, well, repetition is boring. We have to change things uh, around. Um, okay, here's one where, as far as I know, I'm the only translator to have done this. In the story of the binding of Isaac, um, Abraham says, or oh, first of the narrator reports, and... Uh, Abraham said to his to his servant, well, uh, okay, Abraham, in most translations, Abraham said to his servants, let me and the lad go up and worship, and after we will come back to you. Now, the Hebrew actually uses the same word for servant and for uh, uh, lad or, or boy, na'ar. And I think this is very pointed and very poignant. That is, a na'ar in biblical Hebrew is a, a, a boy, or it can be a young man in some contexts. It, it's also anyone who is in a subordinate position to somebody else. This is when kids were still subordinate to their parents. As I said, this is a very ancient text. Uh, so um, uh, the, um, what is poignant about this, and here's how I translate and Abraham said to his lads, let me and the lad go up and worship. It kind of grabs your throat that first he's talking to his servants, who probably are his slaves. And in the next breath, well, first the, the narrator reports him talking to his slaves. And then in the next breath, Abraham used that same word, referring affectionately with paternal fondness to his son Isaac. And uh, th- that kind of thing happens 
uh, again and again. Sometimes um, with very pointed uh, uh, thematic significance. Here's an example. A, uh, Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Th- this is where she tries to seduce him, uh, you recall, uh, and then assaults him and, and he, he escapes. Now, uh, before that in the story, at the beginning of Genesis 39, we were told several times um, and everything that Potiphar had, he left in Joseph's hands. Uh, in the Hebrew, it's uh, a singular. It's even better. He left in Joseph's hand. Uh, and the modern translators, people can't understand metaphors, so uh, uh, hand should be translated as trust or confidence or authority, which they all do. Now, at the climax of the story, when Joseph escapes her sexual advance, uh, the text says, and he left his garment, the same verb, he left his garment in her hand. So the uh, metaphorical in his hand, in his trust, becomes the literal evidential fact uh, 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 against the lie that she will cook up that he left his garment in in her hand. And if you don't repeat the in her hand, in his hand, through the chapter, then you lose the point of the story. Okay. Um, Here's another aspect of biblical narrative uh, that that dawned on me only when I got halfway through the first chapter of Genesis, which is as follows. I had made up a a little mental checklist uh, of aspects of Hebrew style that we should pay attention to, but I had left out one item, and then I realized that it had to be there, which is the following. The, um, uh, The creation of the heavenly luminaries... Uh, it's uh, the way I translate it as follow and God created the great light for dominion of day and the small light for dominion of night and the stars then when I wrote that down uh, I write by hand with pencil uh, I stopped myself called said what I say dominion of uh the first reason I gave myself, which is partially a, a reason, but not the real reason, is that uh, the Hebrew... See, all the translations say to rule over. The worst of all, it, it, they use an infinitive, is the uh, Jewish Publication Society, which says to dominate the day, which is... I talk about tinier for English. I mean, the Soviet Union dominated the states uh, of Eastern Europe after the Second World War. You, you don't dominate the, the, the day, the, or the sun and the moon don't dominate the day. Uh, okay. Um, but then I said there's, there's a, a more compelling reason that I said dominion, which is the rhythm. Okay, I'm going to say it in Hebrew now. Uh, that is the great light, etc., Et ha'or ha'gadol l'memshelet ha'yom 
ואת המאור הקטון לממשלת הלילה ואת הכוכבים. Now, you can hear, the great light for dominion of day, the small light, is the same cadence. Uh, why is that important? You might say that, you know, you're just fooling around with sound that doesn't mean anything. In great literary texts, it's very rare that, a, um, uh, that sound and meaning are not intrinsically related in, in some way. Now, This, is the, this first chapter of Genesis is the work of the priestly writer who has a wonderful sense, quite unlike the second version of, of creation, that creation is an orderly process from day one to the first Sabbath and that everything falls into place harmoniously. And the... Uh, that beautiful cadence of the Hebrew, et ha-ma'or ha-gadol l'memshelet ha-yom, v'et ha-ma'or ha-katon l'memshelet ha-layla, v'et ha-kochavim, is a kind of subliminal manifestation of the beautiful orderliness of creation. And it isn't that you distort the meaning if you take out the, the, uh, the rhythm, but you certainly diminish it. And of course, to dominate, uh, aside from being wrong as an idiom, it, uh, uh, smashes the, the rhythm to uh, smithereens. So I, I began to be on the lookout, not just in the poetry, but in the prose, for uh, the, the rhythmic fullness uh, of uh, the original. Then... There's the matter of um, syntax, word order. Now, the basic strategy of biblical syntax is what is called, it's a, not such a baffling term, parataxis, which means parallel syntax, uh, which means that, that by and large the language is ordered as a series of parallel clauses connected by and with, um, with very few becauses, inasmuch, since, uh, however, and, and so forth. Now, the assumption of modern translators is that, well, we don't use language like that anymore, so we can't do that. So they entirely repackage the syntax and as a result, make it sound uh, like the daily newspaper. Whereas I think that, that uh, the uh, parallel clauses are often very eloquent and very moving and then often have the advantage by not stipulating causal relations of making you ponder what, what the causal relations are. Okay, here I can't resist an anecdote from a friend of mine who teaches at Stanford. He was using uh, the, the uh, New English Bible in, in a course where he had students read the book of Ezekiel. This is before my book came out. He said, can you give me the draft of your translation of Ezekiel for me to show to students? I said, yes. And he duplicated it and uh, then he conducted a little experiment. 
he had students write a couple of pages on what they perceived to be the difference between my highly paratactic translation and the, the other modern translation they were looking at. And all the students said they preferred the parataxis, that, that it made things more concrete, it made things uh, uh, more vivid. So here's a kind of lab demonstration that, that people can not only read parataxis, young people in the 21st century, but can respond to it. Okay, uh, I, I won't uh, torment you with extended examples. Now, uh, there is also a matter of expressive inversion in the syntax. Uh, and I'll, I'll use one example, and then I'll explain my rationale for it. When Jacob's sons come back from their, their first journey to Egypt and they report to their old dad that, that Simeon is being held hostage and that the man who rules over all of Egypt, of course, is, he's their brother, but they don't know this, will not see their face again unless they bring down Benjamin. Old Jacob responds as follows in my translation, which follows the Hebrew. Me, you have bereaved. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and Benjamin you would take. On me is all the burden. So let me focus on the first phrase for a minute. Me, you have bereaved. Of course, that's not the normal uh, word order, right? You, has, uh, you have bereaved me. And all the, the uh, modern translations do it that way, the, the normal English uh, uh, word order. In fact, we are used to syntactic inversion. If we go back just a little way in the, the, the history of English literature, for example, uh, a, a poem that many of you read back in high school uh, Keats is on, on uh, first uh, uh, re reading uh, Chapman's Homer, begins as follows. Much have I wandered in the realms of gold. Not I have wandered in the realms of gold much, or something like that, but much have I wandered in the realms of gold, because Keats wanted to put the much out front. So if we go back, say, just to the 19th century, uh, we find, at least in poetry, many instances uh, of syntactic inversion which are quite accessible to us. Now, th there's a certain um, advantage, I think, in using a, a syntactic maneuver that's characteristic of English a couple of hundred years ago. Because it, it, without being too extreme, it does give the language some of this antique coloration. But let's go back to, Je to old Jacob. It says, me, you have bereaved. Why did the Hebrew do it that way, and why do I follow the Hebrew? Uh, the normal way in biblical Hebrew to say you have bereaved me is to take 
the verb that means to bereave and to put an accusative suffix me at the end of it, one word. It would come out like this, shikaltuni. That is not what the writer does. Instead, he breaks out the Hebrew me, oti, and puts it at the beginning of the sentence. That is, it sounds like this in the Hebrew, oti shikaltem. Now, why does he do that? I think it's in keeping with what I conceive as the representation of Jacob, old Jacob, as a kind of prima donna of paternal grief. He's always putting himself forward. Me, you have bereaved. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and Benjamin you would take. On me is all the burden. So it's a maneuver of characterization, and you lose all that if you don't follow the word order of uh, the original. Okay, now let me go on to word choice. There is... um, a great deal of precision and uh, uh, and boldness in the word choices that that the Hebrew writers use. Um, Let me um, uh, give you one example. Um, When Hagar is driven out into the wilderness by Abraham following his wife's orders. Uh, she's carrying water in a water skin, and the water runs out. They're, they're in the desert somewhere in the southern Negev, bordering on Egypt, and she knows you can't last long in the desert heat without water. And presumably Ishmael is a youngish boy. We, we don't know his exact age at this moment. So she takes him and she does something, vatashlichenu is the Hebrew verb, under one of the bushes. So you look at the range of translations and you see she laid him under one of the bushes. She put him under one of the bushes. She placed him one of the bushes. The best of all, but still inadequate, is the King James Version, which says she thrust him under one of the, the uh, bushes. But this Hebrew verb means one thing and one thing only in the Bible. It means to fling it's the very verb that's used when Pharaoh says, every male child that is born you shall fling into the Nile. So what's going on? I think that the writer is being considerably bolder than his translators. What, what he sees going on is that this desperate mother who has an only son and is sure that the son is going to die within hours, maybe within uh, minutes, in a kind of paroxysm of maternal grief or maternal desperation, flings him down under a bush and runs off so she won't see the, the death of the child. 
And that's what the, the, the writer gets when he boldly chooses this word. And uh, I think that we have to uh, add to, we have to follow his um, uh, boldness. Okay, now, uh, the, the, there's something, here I'm going to generalize a, a, a little bit. Um, how to do philology. Now, if that word puzzles a few of you, it, it, it's uh, a technique developed maybe in, a, in the early 19th century, late 18th century, for the study of classical texts and then transferred to the Bible, which is uh, a kind of uh, scientific investigation of the meanings of words and how you establish the, the meanings. It's also uh, an investigation of the evolution of ancient texts, but that doesn't uh, fall within my purview, not as a translator at any rate. So we have, um, I'm going to go to the, the Samson story. And I'll remind you of the details. Not everyone has them fresh in mind. Samson marries a Philistine woman. And he's obliged to invite 30 male Philistine guests to the wedding festivities, which go on for seven days. And you remember, he poses a riddle to them. And he says, if you solve my riddle, I, I will... Um, give each of you a, a change of clothing and uh, some sumptuous cloth. So uh, the, uh, the, the term for change of clothing is, is uh, an easy one, chalifat begadim. It couldn't mean anything else. In fact, in, in modern Hebrew, chalifat means a, a suit, sort of following this. Um, I guess you change into your suit. You don't wear it all the time. Um, so uh, then he, they uh, coerce his wife to reveal the secret uh, of the riddle, the, the solution to the riddle, and they tell it to him. And he's furious. He realizes that, that the only way they could have found out was by pressuring his wife. And in a, a remark that, that, that has clearly a sexual implication, he says, had you not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. So in a great rage, he goes down to Ashkelon and kills 30 Philistines. What kind of Philistines, I'll explain in a minute. And... Um, takes their, not chalifot, but their chalitzot, with a tz sound in the middle, rather than an f sound in the middle. Now, every single English version, including the King James Version, represents this as garment, or some say tunic, some say belt. I don't, I don't think they had belts in the ancient Near but a small difficulty. Um, the, uh, and the reason they do this is the terms of the wager were for 30 changes of garment. But I said, wait a minute, that's a chalitzot is not the same word as chalifot. 
Now, I then turn to my Hebrew concordance, which, let me tell you, is the most helpful guide to understanding biblical Hebrew. And I find that there's only one other place in the entire Hebrew Bible where the word halitza, as a, uh, something you put on, occurs. And that's now, here's a story you won't remember, so I, I will recall the, the details for you. Uh, that's in Second Samuel 3. There's a, a, a civil war going on between the house of David and the house of Saul after Saul's death. And uh, Saul's savvy, battle-hardened commander, uh, Abner, is fleeing from fleet-footed Asael, who's on David's side. And he knows he can kill him, but doesn't want to kill him. He doesn't want to make bad blood between him and his brothers. So he says, uh, uh, turn you to the right or the left and strike down one of the lads and take his chalitza. Same word. Now, the King James got this right because they were following the Septuagint and both, like me, were readers of Homer. Because if you read the Iliad, what is it that a warrior takes from his foe when he kills him on the battlefield? He doesn't take his tunic. He doesn't take his belt. He takes his armor. You remember the story uh, of uh, uh, Achilles' armor. Uh, so then it occurred to me that the word chalitza is cognate with the word chalutz, which, unlike modern Hebrew, where it means pioneer, means military vanguard. And then I said, that's it. The, um, uh, the chalitza was the special armor worn by the fighters in the military vanguard. Now, this takes me back to the Dan Samson story, which has a new light thrown on it. The, that is, what does Samson do? Instead of just fulfilling the terms of the wager, he goes down to Ashkelon and kills not 30 ordinary Philistines, but 30 elite fighters. And he brings back to the wedding guests not changes of garment, but uh, something far more valuable. But it's also a threat. You see what I did to these guys. Just imagine what I can do to you. So it's a wonderful, fun detective game, uh, paying attention to uh, the, the literary context as part of uh, philology. Okay. Um, maybe, uh, okay. Uh, one last example uh, of uh, that has to do with, with word choice. Um, the uh, uh, God says to Moses early in Genesis, "I am about to appear before you in Av Heanan, Av with an iron." Now. Every translation I've seen 
says, in a, I will, I'm about to appear, appear before you in a thick cloud. But that's wrong, dead wrong. That, that is, the Hebrew word for um, uh, um, thick is aveh, with the letter he at the end. But this is just av. And what does av, ayin, bet, mean in biblical Hebrew? It means cloud. So what's going, it's the cloud of the cloud, or let's say the, the thunderhead of the cloud. Okay, I've, now I don't think this has really been noticed by the scholars, but in every instance where you have two synonyms joined together in what's technically called the construct state, uh, the X of Y, um, uh, the effect is a superlative or an intensification. So uh, the Av Anan is not a thick cloud, it's a kind of super cloud. It's a virtually mythological cloud. And I ended up translating as, I'm about to appear before you in the utmost cloud, which gives it a, a, a different sense. And as I say, examples abound in the Bible of, of this uh, joining uh, of synonyms in a There's another one in Genesis that, that is Each one of those words means darkness. So all, together they mean something like uh, intense darkness, utmost darkness. Okay, I, I would like now in the, the last part of my presentation to um, read to you three extended um, uh, examples uh, of what I've tried to do, and I will um, pause briefly to comment uh, on certain translation choices. Okay, L let's begin from the beginning, Genesis 1. When, well, uh, I'll write off, make a comment. As I start, when God began to create heaven and earth. Now, that's not my innovation at all, I have to say. The, that is, we're all accustomed, in the beginning, God created. But the Hebrew, reshit, always appears attached to something afterwards, the beginning of the kingship of so-and-so. Uh, and uh, and it doesn't say bareshit, which would mean in the beginning. It says bereshit bara Elohim. So this was understood in the Middle Ages by Rashi, the great Hebrew commentator, who said that bereshit bara Elohim is equivalent to bereshit bero Elohim, in the beginning of God's creating. That seemed to me a little too awkward in English, so I turn that into when God began to create heaven and earth. And the earth then was welter and waste and darkness over the deep and God's breath hovering over the waters. God said, let there be light. Now, what's this welter and waste? Okay, the Hebrew is tohu vavohu. I suspect, although I'm not sure, that the first thing we know, it means emptiness, tohu. Uh, the second term might be 
a nonce word invented for the occasion by the writer, which rhymes with the first one, tova vohu. And the effect is, we have this in English. We have words like harem scarum, helter skelter, and generally the, the, those pairings suggest some kind of con- confusion and, and lack of order, and so which fits perfectly with, with this. I, alas, could not think of a good rhyme. So I compromised. Translation is full of compromises by settling for an alliteration. Uh, the earth then was welter and waste, and God's breath hovering over the waters. Okay, breath, here's a judgment call. The Hebrew ruach means three things. It means spirit, it means wind, and it means uh, breath. It's often translated as God's spirit, but that that kind of feeds into or is fed by um, Trinitarian theology. That, that, that is, it's the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit that's hovering over the face of the waters. It seems very unlikely to me. It could be a wind, but I think given especially the, the other version of creation and God's breath uh, uh, breathing life into the first human being, that, that maybe breath is the most likely choice. And there was light. And God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And it was evening, it was morning, first day. And God said, let there be a vault in the midst of the waters, and let it divide water from water. Why vault? Okay, uh, the, the King James Version famously says firmament which is not bad technically because the Hebrew comes from a verb that means to pound out, so maybe to make something firm. But it's a mouthful, too many syllables. It breaks the rhythm. And a vault is an architectural element, so I thought that that worked. And God made the vault... uh, Uh, and it divided the water beneath the vault from the water above the vault. And so it was. And God called the vault heavens, and it was evening, it was morning, second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered in one place so that the dry land will appear. And so it was. Okay, I think I'm going to um, cut short the... um, uh, passage in Genesis because I like to get at least to one other passage. Um, so let's go to poetry now. Uh, I don't. I want to try to keep this down to fifty minutes to leave some time for questions. Okay. The um, Psalm thirty begins with uh, a superscription, which is not part of the poem. Psalm song for the dedication of the house for David. Why it's the dedication of the house, why for David, we don't know. Uh, That's an editorial intervention, but since the word for dedication is Chanukah, Chanukah this is the psalm that that is uh, read on Chanukah. I shall 
Exalt you, Lord, for you drew me up and you gave no joy to my enemies. Lord my God, I cried to you and you healed me. Lord, you brought me up from Sheol, gave me life from those gone down to the pit. Hymn to the Lord, O his faithful, acclaim his holy name. But a moment in his wrath, life in his pleasure. At evening one beds down weeping, and in the morning glad song. As for me, I thought in my quiet days, never will I stumble. Lord, in your pleasure you made me stand mountains strong. When you hid your face, I was stricken. To you, O Lord, I call, and to the Master I plead, what profit in my blood, in my going down deathward? Will dust acclaim you? Will it tell your truth? Hear, Lord, and grant me grace. Lord, become helper to me. You have turned my dirge to a dance for me, undone my sackcloth and bound me with joy. Oh, let my heart hymn you and be not still. Lord, my God, for all time I acclaim you. Now, uh, I hope you heard that there is a kind of rhythmic integrity to the English. And the... Hebrew poetry, ancient Hebrew, is very compact. There aren't a lot of polysyllabic words, and and there are other reasons for compactness in the structure of the language. What I try to do is to eliminate all unnecessary words and to avoid polysyllabic words as much as I can, which means favoring the Anglo-Saxon component of the English vocabulary over the Greek and Latin component. And that's reflected here. But let me first uh, uh, comment on one unfortunate compromise. Uh, as I say, you always compromise when you translate in the English version, and then uh, go on to um, uh, a couple of things that I think work better. Uh, I shall exalt you, Lord, for you drew me up. Now, that's not very good, drew me up. Uh, the, the reason why I did it is the following. The, the Hebrew is a verb that elsewhere refers to drawing water up from a well. And that's a clue to the ancient audience, because drowning is a set metaphor for death or near death. So I, I reach for something, but it doesn't quite work in English, I have to admit. But then let's go on uh, to two other points in the, this short psalm. Um, the speaker, uh, and this is a kind of supplication psalm that turns into a Thanksgiving psalm, uh, says, what profit in my blood? Now, the King James, first of all, the moderns don't think, again, believing, I think, cluelessly that moderns cannot understand metaphors. Instead of blood, which is very concrete, they, they say um, uh, death. But uh, the King James Version represents this as, what profit is there in my blood? Now, if you listen to that, it's arrhythmic. If in most printed versions of the King James, uh, the is there is italicized. 
which is not an emphasis, is to indicate that there's a, a, a word or phrase that's implied in the Hebrew but isn't actually there. Um, but I looked at that and I thought, it, it's, it's not necessary. You can leave it out and you get the right rhythm. That is, the, the Hebrew sounds like this. Ma betzabdami. Okay? So the, my English is what prophet in my blood. The same cadence. And you don't need the is there. So uh, th- that was a simple solution. Now, toward the end of the, the psalm, uh, you have turned my... Uh, and the, the Hebrew verb uh, noun here is misped, which means a chant or speech of mourning, M-O-U. Um, and, but it, the Hebrew works like this, hafachta mispedi lemacholli. You have two nouns. They both begin with an M sound. Misped, something to do with mourning, machol, uh, dance. And I realized that that alliteration was significant for the poet because it meant that it was a way of demonstrating through sound how God can flip something, turn it into its opposite. Uh, so uh, you, uh, uh, I looked at that for a moment, and then I got lucky. Every once in a while, you got lucky as a translator. I said, hey, there's a perfectly good word for misped in English that begins with a D. And that's dirge. You have turned my dirge to a dance for me. And I felt that, that I had reproduced the Hebrew. Okay, oh. let me stop there and take your questions. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.